Let's open in prayer. That feels quiet. Let's pray. Gracious God, whatever Satan throws at us, though he may buffet us with winds and rain and struggle and strife and disease and illness, may we have the faith that allows us to cry, cry out, it is well. God, you are so worthy of worship. And here in our own little minds, in our own little worlds, we, f we find so much to uh, hold us back from, from worshiping you, from adoring you, from loving you, from cherishing you, from seeing you as Savior. Lord, grant us the, 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 the eyes to see, the ears to hear what you have in your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Am I on? Yeah, you're on but check, 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 check. Is can you bump the gain maybe? All the way? Like literally all the way? Or just the just the volume slider? All right. <laughs> well, you know, I'll just blow out everybody on Facebook Live. Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. So go ahead and take out your Bibles and open to Matthew 15, verse 21. Um, when we think of some of the greatest enemies of the nation of Israel, we often think about the Philistines. We think about the Babylonians. We might even think about the, the Assyrians or the Syrians. But there actually was an even greater enemy and one who did not feature very frequently in the Old Testament, though they played a giant hand in it. And that would be the Canaanites. The Canaanites were, uh, well, well, we'll talk about it a little more, but the Canaanites were the people that lived in Israel prior to, the land of Israel prior to um, the, the, the Jews, well, at the time, the Israelites, taking over the promised land, the land that God had promised them. Um, and uh, they, they, they were a people group that was probably more hated than even the Samaritans. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at a, a woman who was of the Canaanites, um, one, one, of, one of the descendants of the Canaanites. And uh, the fact that this woman is by lineage a descendant of the Canaanites is actually a testimony to Israel's ancestral failure. We'll talk about that. So this woman, who should be hated more than the Samaritans, who should be despised by all the Jews, how then will she be treated by Jesus? So, again, open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, and let's read. I'll read. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's first, before we dive into this text any further, let's actually ask the question, who were the Canaanites? I kind of answered that. Um, the uh, In the land of... Uh, Israel, there's the Jordan River, and the Canaanites dwelt west of the Jordan River. And uh, they, when, when after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, literally just going back and forth in the middle of nowhere as the Lord led them in what seemed like just the biggest fool's errand ever, they finally come to the promised land. And they're standing uh, on, on the edge of the promised land at the beginning of Joshua, and God. God had already told them that when they come into the land, they're supposed to wipe out everyone. In Exodus 23, 24, he says, you shall, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Everywhere where, there's, where they worship needs to be crushed. And then in Exodus 34, again, he says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a uh, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when you, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you shall take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. And then again, in Deuteronomy seven, verses one through five, he says something very similar. So the Israelites hear this minimum of three times directly from the Lord. You're supposed to go. And if you don't, if you don't break them down and destroy their places of worship, then then you're going to suffer. Well, it turns out that they did not break down the Canaanites completely. Because over and over again throughout Israel's history, you see them worshiping a false god named Baal. And Baal was the god of the Canaanites. And Baal was a, we'll just say, a god of pleasure. And so they had these high places. And the high places also had these things called Asherah poles, which looked like a certain piece of male genitalia. And they were supposed to be worshipped. Worship was done there that reflected the, 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 the look of the poles. So the Israelites kept going back to these high places over and over again. And they kept failing morally. And so the Canaanites, while they weren't a militaristic threat anymore. They were a moralistic threat. They, they were a constant thorn in the side of Israel. And since, since Israel did not wipe them out, you know what happened? Exactly what God said would happen. They continued to worship Baal and worship at the Asherahs and to bring back these supposed to be destroyed high places. The Canaanites existed in and amongst Israel. They were intermarried just like they weren't supposed to do. And there was constant moral collapse and religious syncretism where people would go to these Asherah poles and worship God. 
And again, God said this would happen. Deuteronomy 7.4 makes that so clear. He says, you, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or making their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Imagine that. God says what would happen happens. So for, for, for centuries, actually a couple thousand years, this, this has been a constant problem. And so then when we come to Matthew chapter, chapter 15 and we see a Canaanite, the fact that this woman exists is a testimony to the failure of Israel. We see that Jesus withdraws. He leaves these, these Jewish regions of Israel and starts heading towards these more Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. So here he is withdrawing from the Israelites, going, uh, well, he's kind of skirting alongside the territory of the Gentiles. And then comes out this Canaanite. Now, if you were to read the same, the, the same situation in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, you'll see that Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman, not a Canaanite. So what, what's, what's the problem here? Is this, is this just wrong? No. Syrophoenicia was a region just outside Tyre and Sidon. Little mini tiny region. You, you, you won't really see it on a map. You might see the dot and the name. But, but this woman was from the region of Syrophoenicia, but apparently by birth she was a Canaanite. So Matthew is trying to make a point. It makes more sense to say the region she's from rather than just her lineage. So Matthew is making, try, trying, to, trying to illustrate for his readers, which are predominantly Jewish, that this woman should be hated. And, and the, the story kind of makes sense. If Jesus really does have this animosity towards her, then he shouldn't have answered her. The story basically should have stopped at verse 25. But it doesn't. So we have to think about these, these things, and we have to pause, and we have to wonder, again, why is this Canaanite coming before Jesus? And, and, and how does she know that, that he's the son of David, that he's the Messiah, that he's capable of doing this, this thing, this exorcism, this removing of the demon from, from her daughter? Why does she have this faith? Why, why, at the very end, does Jesus commend her faith? She's a Canaanite. She's of the enemy. An ancient enemy, a stupid enemy that our people didn't deal with. Here, we should deal with her. She shouldn't be blessed. She should be sent away. Well, that's what the disciples think. But here she is, properly worshiping God. She has right knowledge, calling Jesus Lord and Son of David. She has a right practice. She comes before Jesus. She kneels before him. And, and, and in that kneeling, she has the right posture towards him. So, there's two things I want us to note from this text before, before we, we launch into these biblical realities that are, that are in here. And, and hopefully it causes us to worship uh, Jesus even deeper. So the first thing, thing number one that I want you to note about this passage is that real faith is reflected in right knowledge, right practice, and right posture, like I just said. 
Now, I've said it before, but, but true doctrine leads to true worship, and false doctrine leads to false worship. If, if somebody doesn't really know who God is, if they're not actually linked uh, intellectually with what the Bible says, then, then they're really honestly worshiping another God. Uh, they might be worshiping God, but they might be doing it wrong, and if they're, if they're being dragged off into this other direction, then frankly, they're not really worshiping God. So I've said that before, but here in, in, in our text, we have a woman who knows who Jesus is. She, she knew that he was able to, able to heal her daughter of the demon, and frankly, she knows that, that he'll listen to her. Otherwise, why would she be persistent? She wouldn't keep pushing after him and chasing after him and shouting for him if she didn't think he was, he was going to listen. So this woman persists in, in, in a trust that he'll hear, crying out to him, even though he doesn't answer back right away. And she wasn't even a Jew. She was a Canaanite. So I just as a, a, by, by way of, of, of application from this truth that here's a Canaanite continuing to, to, to cry out to, to Christ, um, I want to encourage you, don't be deterred in your prayers, even if God doesn't seem to be answering you. So this woman knows who Jesus is. Jesus is. She, she knows how to cry out to him. She knows what to, what to say to him. But then she also kneels before him and, and humbles herself. She even agrees. Yeah, I am a dog, but even the dogs will eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus then does something odd in response to that. He commends her faith. Why? Because she actually truly had faith. She had real faith reflected in right knowledge, right practice, and right posture. If we want to be commended for our faith, then we need to do as she did, but not as the disciples did. So the second thing to know, the first thing is that real faith is reflected in right knowledge, right practice, right posture. Second thing, the disciples needed to see her faith. Why? Well, reason number one, this woman was annoying them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly what's happening, right? Verse 23, he did not answer her, and his disciples come, and they beg him. They beg, they plead. They, they, Jesus, please just shut this lady up. Kind of like if you live in an apartment complex. This, I used to live, uh, live in an apartment complex where I had a neighbor who, first of all, it was a family of, of, of racists against white people, um, a family. It was a Chinese family or Hong Kong family. I don't really know. I didn't really get to talk to them. But man, they would spit down racial slurs at me every time I'd walk by them and I'd wave at them, right? And they had this little grandchild. I'm not sure if it was a boy or a girl because I never really got... I think it was a girl, actually, now that I think about it. But this little girl would just run around constantly. And and so I'd wake up, like they'd babysit this little girl. So I'd wake up to she's running above me. And it's like, please, why can't you move the playroom to somewhere other than right above my bedroom? And then eventually crash. And so many times did I, like the disciples, pray, Lord, please let them move. <laughs> Let them not be where, where right above me. Just, just please move to another apartment in the same complex. Get, get evicted. Please, God, let them, let them be taken away. Send her away. For all I hear is the crying of their granddaughter. 
So this woman is annoying the, the disciples. She's, she's first of all a filthy Canaanite. She's a dog and she's not of the lost sheep of Israel. There's a ton of reasons here why, why, why she should just be hated outright. And with that, with that dog statement, I mean, that sounds so mean, and it was, but, but it was common for Jews to refer to non-Jews. So Gentiles, it's the Greek word ethnos, means ethnicities, everybody else, basically. It was, freq- it was common for the Jews to refer to non-Jews as dogs. It was a, it was a derogatory slang word. Um, However, the Greek word here is kind of a softer version of that, so you don't really get that. Both translate dog. Um, So so a bunch of commentators say that Jesus was trying to be a little softer with her. He he wasn't being harsh, uh, or as harsh as he could have been. Like, there's a difference between going, you dog, and you dog. Anyway, that's not really it, but but <laughs> but that they're they're trying. The commentators are all in agreement for the most part, saying Jesus wasn't wasn't meaning to be insulting. He was just making a cultural statement. So this could have been. Uh, dogs were, were viewed as pests during this time. Uh, you, we, I, I have a dog. My dog is kind of a pest that lives in the house. But some people get dogs for protection. Some people get dogs because they want companionship. Other people like me get dogs because probably never going to get adopted. And so you might as well do it. Anyway, but, but, uh, but the, the, a dog was seen as a pest. But then there were dogs that would be let into people's homes at the time. They weren't trained to sit and roll over and let me scratch behind your ears. They were, they were more just like fed so that they would fend off attackers to the house. So Jesus, Jesus could have been implying that and you get to the metaphor and that kind of makes sense, but I, I think that's kind of digging into the weeds a little bit. Uh, Jesus still calls her a dog. And if you think about the comparison, sheep are useful. Sheep have have a purpose. And when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he calls calls her a dog. It's not right for the the dogs, for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Sheep are useful, but dogs are regarded as pests. And if you think about it, that's exactly how the disciples are treating her. Jesus is saying this because he's kind of pointing out that this is, this is what the disciples think she is. Like a little yippy dog on the hillside that just won't shut up. So the disciples needed to see her faith. They, they needed to see, see Jesus praise her for her faith. They, they needed to hear her praise of Jesus by calling him the son of David, by, by giving a messianic term, a Canaanite, knowing who Jesus is. They needed to see her kneel in reverence before the Lord. They needed to see her humility in agreeing that the fact that she's just a dog begging for crumbs from the master's table. That is, after all, what a miraculous healing is for Jesus. The amount, and, and what I mean to say in that is that the amount, the amount of effort expelled by Jesus in healing someone, uh, of, of healing someone even of the most severe disease, is just like a master dropping crumbs from his table. 
except deliberately on the floor for his dog to lap up. So why, 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 why did the disciples need to see this woman's faith? Why, why do I think that that's uh, the, the main thing here? Well, because, frankly, Jesus is convicting the disciples. So three, three biblical realities that I think explain why they needed to see this. And this is where I really want to spend the majority of our time today, is thinking about these three biblical realities. Uh, thing number one, faith is the only prerequisite to being accepted by the Lord. By grace alone, through faith alone. Faith is the only prerequisite. Thing number two, Jesus went only to the lost sheep of Israel, but he is not only limited to the lost sheep of Israel. And three, no fleshly hostility serves as a wall of division in God's kingdom. So those are three biblical realities that this text testifies of. And I want to I take a look at those. So, so thing number one, faith is the only prerequisite to being accepted by the Lord. Did you know that? It's, it's a Reformation slogan, you know, by, by grace alone, through faith alone. But, but it's not just a Reformation slogan. It's actually a, a Pauline statement. Paul, in Ephesians 2, makes it very clear how we are saved. He's not saying that it's uh, by your own effort. In fact, he says the exact opposite. So Ephesians 2 Verses 8 and 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this. And as a Pharisee, he has all the right to write these words. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Catch that? How much of salvation is God? How much of your salvation is God? Is it part of it? Is it some of it? Is it, is it mostly you, partially God? Now, what's the percentage breakdown? All God. It is the gift of God. All of it. All people are saved or accepted by faith alone. Grace is but the vessel of salvation, and faith is how Christians move about on the boat. Uh, all uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I'm going to say it better. All right. <laughs> so maybe it's the clip, not the microphone. So how do we get our sea legs? How do we walk around the vessel of grace? Well, it's by becoming acquainted with the boat. By becoming acquainted with, with, with all the grace that is the vessel. And we get that as Christians specifically by, by becoming well acquainted with God's word. How do I get that from the text? Well, remember how the woman called, her, called Jesus the son of David? There is no way that she would have gotten that apart from, from being immersed in God's word. It's not like she just heard it from someone and then she started repeating it. There's only one other time, by the way, that, that in Matthew that, that that term is used before this point. So it's not like this is a commonly stated thing. And so therefore, um, 
Therefore, she just thought, oh, yeah, absolutely, this is right. No, she must have been, been exercising within God's word. She must have gotten her sea legs within God's word to have that right knowledge of who Jesus was, her right practice of calling out to him, and her right posture of kneeling and praising him. All these things can only happen if, if someone is continuing to grow and humble themselves underneath the word of God. Because that's how we grow our faith. If you, if you want to trust God more, read the Bible. And don't just read it piecemeal. Just sit down and read the Bible. Go through the Bible. Read it as a complete story. If your faith is weak, then dive into the word of God. Dive into the grace that is this book and you will find yourself growing in faith because you just are. Not because of anything you're doing other than looking into this wonderful window that is God's word. She must have done it. She must have received the grace of having, having a synagogue that would bring her in. They would let her sit among the teachings. They would let her hear the prophecies of Isaiah. They would let her hear the prophecies of Ezekiel. What a grace it is to be able to know God in the Bible and to look through these words to see Jesus' majesty and worth. What a comfort it is also to know that it is God's grace that precedes faith. Because then none of us can boast of our own salvation. Should this woman go home and be like, hey daughter, guess what? I got you healed. That was me. Yeah, I talked to the Jesus guy, just like those weirdos said that I would. And you know, when I talked to him, I, I convinced him with my awesome rhetoric and man, he gave right in. Hook, line, and sinker. He did exactly what I said, what I said he should do. Is that what she's going to do, you think? I don't think so. Because, because otherwise, otherwise, it would be of her. It would be her works that brought about this salvation for her daughter. So therefore, I think we should take away from this that the woman received the grace of knowing God in the scripture before she, she had that faith to go to him for, for help. Faith that he will give is the only prerequisite to coming to Jesus. Thing number two, biblical reality number two. Jesus went only to the lost sheep of Israel, but he is not limited only to the lost sheep of Israel. I think all of us in this room are Gentiles by birth. I don't think any single one of us is, uh, is, is Jewish. Uh, so I think we can all rightly praise God for that one and, and accept it as true. But, but just to look into God's word, Isaiah actually prophesies of Jesus in Isaiah 49 uh, verses 6 and 7. Um, I think I actually didn't put down the notation in my notes as I look here. So Isaiah 49, I know that verse five and six, maybe. Um, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. 
that Israel might be gathered to him. By the way, this is about Jesus. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. So the first part, Israel is supposed to be brought back through Jesus. But then God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Septuagint says that pretty similar, except it ends that my salvation may reach even to the Gentiles. The disciples may have been in danger of thinking that the gospel was only for Israel. Why do I think that? Well, they frequently thought that. <laughs> uh, they, they, they frequently forgot that the, that the gospel was for Gentiles also. They forgot it while Jesus was walking on the earth. And then they also forgot it after Jesus ascended. If we were to turn to Acts 10 which you may as well just to bookmark it for later. But if we were to turn to Acts 10, Jesus has to give Peter a vision to remind him that, that the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's about a man named Cornelius, and Jesus, or Jesus gives, uh, gives Peter this kind of funny vision of, a, of a, a, a blanket descending from heaven that has all these clean and unclean animals intermixed. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then after he gets dragged to this, this, Roman, this Roman dude named Cornelius, and he talks to them, and he starts realizing, wow, actually, this guy, this guy knows Jesus. This guy knows, knows what salvation is. And uh, he says in Acts 10.34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is eye-opening for Peter. Jesus just bled, died, and rose from the grave. And guess what he's surprised by? Wow, even the Gentiles get this. So the disciples frequently forgot that the gospel was for the Gentiles. Frequently. They forgot it all the time. Therefore, we should remember that we are recipients of that same gospel truth, that Gentiles are included. All the nations are included. All the ethnicities are included. There is no group of people who cannot be brought to God on the vessel of grace. There's, there's no group of people too far out. Not even the Canaanites are excluded from God's promises. Biblical reality number three. No fleshly hostility serves as a wall of division in God's kingdom. Listen, between God and man, all mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. If you've heard the Romans road, you've heard that a million times. All, all men, all men, all. How many of them? All. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. If then all men are in the same condition, then we must know that there's, there, there's nothing in the flesh, there's no man-centered division that, that can sit as a wall of hostility. Nothing. All men, having been alienated by sin, reconciled by grace, lived out in faith, should find these walls of division. 
Therefore, we must not follow the example of the disciples in this passage. We should not let those who annoy the tar out of us. It's a cricket. There's a cricket on the floor and it's going back and forth and it's driving me nuts. Anyway, <laughs> um, there, 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 there is nobody, no person who is beyond beyond salvation, point two, and that there's, there's, there's nothing that should divide us. We should not let those who annoy us make us think that they are re beyond redemption. We should not let our personal annoyances think that someone is not worthy of receiving God's compassion. We also should not follow the, the example of the disciples and ask Jesus to send certain obnoxious people away. I was in the wrong. I was in the wrong when I prayed that Jesus would, would take away my neighbor. And you know what? It's a sin that I have to bear. I have to bear it. I never once tried to approach them with the gospel. Why? Because they were too hateful and I just didn't want to deal with that. And we call that a justification. We call it an excuse. That was a sin of mine. I was too, too frustrated and annoyed to let the, the compassion of Christ overrule my frustration. No man-centered distinction makes a person irredeemable. Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus himself, well, it says, he, for he is, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's between Jew and Gentile. How did he do this? Well, verses 15 to 16, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That sounds great, doesn't it? Don't you wish that all the dividing walls in the hosti of hostility within the church were just destroyed and, and, and practically we all just got along? Maybe we sat down around a campfire saying kumbaya, roasted some marshmallows. Yum. Wouldn't it be great if we all expressed in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and lived it out every single day, got along, didn't argue. Instead, we spend our time condemning one another, building walls of hostility. We try to, we try to segregate ourselves instead of coming under the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God, being humbled to submission to the Lord. Through this example of the Canaanite woman's faith, we see that even a Canaanite doesn't have a wall in front of them. Therefore, in God's kingdom, there is, but should not be, and one day will not be, any hostile division. There will be no hostile division between blacks and whites, between Democrats and Republicans, between modern and postmodern philosophies. All have access to God through faith. Therefore, apply this by creating no dividing wall of hostility among the brethren. Don't do it. Lest you be like the disciples and ask that Jesus send away and punish someone who's trying to come to Jesus because of their faith in him. 
So beginning, I asked the question, how was this Canaanite woman treated by Jesus? She was heard. She was granted mercy. She was even commended by Jesus. We should recognize that it's by faith alone that we're accepted by God, by grace, by grace through faith alone. We should recognize that Jesus was not limited to the, to the lost sheep of Israel. Therefore, we all are capable of being saved. And we should act out the fact that there is no fleshly, man-centered, dividing wall of hostility left. But instead, Jesus died to break it down. That's what we can walk away from this. It's not just about pestering Jesus until he gives us what you want. This text is not about, about, uh, uh, about anything other than the apostles receiving the rebuke that they, they were the problem, not the Canaanite woman. Humility and gentleness are marks of Christ's people. We should be people who suppress our biases, who, who, who listen and correct with, with gentleness. We should, we should suppress our hatreds. Those are marks of the Holy Spirit in a believer. We should, we should remember in, in humility that any person is able to stand in reverence and awe of Jesus. And granted, like, frankly, we, we like to draw up these lines that if you are this, you cannot be a Christian. But that's not a line that we should be drawing, friends. It's not. We shouldn't be. Why? Because we're all on a path of sanctification. I one day will, will grow up into a, in, in, well, I'll grow up into a man. I'll stop being a boy. Anyway, I will one day <laughs> grow up and I will be more sanctified by God's grace than, 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 than the time I am now. By God's grace alone. But for me to act like a Pharisee and say, unless you do these ordinances, unless you follow along with these commandments, I am, that's just erecting dividing walls of hostility. It's being divisive in a church body. It's, it's, it's creating punishment where there should be no punishment. We, we should be humble and trusting enough to know that God is working in each one of us to take us exactly where he wants. And frankly, we need to repent when we become divisive. Because it is not a mark of the Holy Spirit to be divisive. And I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to anyone else. That I need to take the rebuke that Jesus gave his apostles in this text. It's an implicit, not explicit rebuke. Because I need to know that I do not determine who might come to Jesus in faith. And I am not the one who should tell certain people that they are unworthy and should be sent away. May God listen and grant mercy to on, uh, on us who are, by the way, at one point, his, one of his greatest enemies. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son into the world to die so that we might be reconciled to yourself, that we might no longer be enemies of you, but, but, but by faith, by, by that wonderful gift of grace that you give us, be, be brought before you.
even as Gentiles, Lord, as, as, as not lost sheep, but dogs barking in the distance, Lord, you have brought us in. You feed us from the, from the crumbs of your, uh, uh, that, are, that are pushed off your table. You are our master and we are, we are but, but olive branches grafted into the tree. God, give us the strength to not create dividing walls of hostility. To not, to not set before people rules by which they must be saved, but instead, may we be people of your gospel who take your good news to the broken, the bruised, the messed up, the mistreated in this world, even the Canaanites, so that they might come before you in faith and submission. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a particularly difficult week for my family. And uh, I have to admit, that song came on in like five different versions yesterday. And every single time I heard it, I wanted to cry. So I'm fighting back tears now. Um, in Christ alone, my hope is found. May it be the same for you. Go in peace, saints. <laughs>